Being the first Sunday night of the month, we normally have our question and answer session, and tonight we will be uh, asking and answering some biblical questions, and uh, we're going to talk about three different things. I do want to make reference to the passage that Brother Kelly just read, and to note particularly what is said there in verse 3. He said, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions. I will tell you, I'm not an expert, but I do know how to look up passages in the Scripture, and so the questions we will address tonight are those that are related to important topics uh, and ones that we need to discuss. I want to keep reminding you of the types of questions uh, and if you do have questions, please feel free to take one of the visitor's cards, flip it over on the back, and write your question. You can hand it to me, lay it up on my desk, hand it to one of the elders, whatever you choose, and we'll try to address it in a future lesson. But the three types of questions that come are those that are, number one, textual. Someone may ask, what does John 3.16 mean? And that's a, the kind of questions I like because they're very... Um, they're easy to approach. You simply go to the Bible and do a Bible study. There are topical lessons which relate to some biblical theme, and those I do think are extremely important. And then there are practical questions. And tonight's question that we're going to address, all three of them, relate to how we apply what the Bible teaches to, to some specific area of our Christian service. So without any further delay, let's go ahead and begin our study tonight. And the first question is one that I've had for a while, but uh, I've had others that were asked first. What does the Bible say about body piercing and tattoos? And uh, I see several smiles coming up on everybody's face. Um, I mentioned that to someone this morning. They smiled like, yeah, that'll be interesting tonight. It's easy for us to express our opinions, and I will tell you that I actually have some very strong opinions on this subject, but that's what they are, their opinions. And uh, I initially thought I might share one or two of those with you, but that's not of value because the person asking the question wanted to know what does the Bible say? And after all, when we get to the end, what the Bible says is what is important, not what any of us think with regards to our opinion. And so the first thing that many people would do would be to go to Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 28. And there the reading states, You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you, I am the Lord. And many people say, oh, wow, there it is. There's the answer. However, I'd like to remind you that whenever you look at a passage of Scripture, that you do not take it out of its context, that you make sure that you see what the passage is talking about in its appropriate context, and that you see if there are other places in the Bible that also address that topic. And there are. Because if you go to verse 27, the verse that precedes it, you will read, You shall not shave the edges of your beard or your head, and you shall not defigure the edges of your beard. So if you're going to suggest that what is 
taking place in verse 28 is wrong, then you men who have a trimmed beard, you may cut parts, you may have just a part of a, then you would come under the same condemnation as this one. If you keep going to Leviticus chapter 21 and verse 5, he said, They shall not make any ball place on their heads, nor shall they shave the edge of their beards, nor make any cuttings in their flesh. Oh, you see, they're all tied together again. But as I keep going through the Bible, I get to Deuteronomy 14 and verse 1. You are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves, shave the front of your head for the dead. Now, if you go back to Leviticus 19.28, you notice that same phrase, for the dead. This was a pagan ritual practice that was done for dead people. You would cut yourself until you bled, or you would make a mark on your body, or you would shave your head, or you would do something that, like the trimming of your beard. When you go to 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah is on top of Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. They had both built altars, and they were both looking for the God to answer by fire. And as the prophets of Baal were screaming and shouting for Baal to answer, Baal didn't do anything. And Elijah's over here mocking by saying, well, you know, maybe he's asleep. Maybe you need to wake him up. Maybe he's gone on a journey, and you need to speak a little louder and try to get his attention. So they cried and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. The cuttings here were pagan practices of these people. When you get to Jeremiah 16 and verse 6, he's talking about what will take place in the land and about the death that was going to take place. He said, both the great and the small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried, nor shall men lament for them, cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them. You see, that's not a custom we have today. So the passages that were being discussed from Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and uh, the other places describe a pagan practice for the dead. On the other hand, when I get to the book of Ezekiel, there were people who had marks placed upon them because they were righteous people. In Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, The Lord said, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations done within it. To the others, he said in my hearing, go through him, go after him through the city, and kill, do not let your eyes spare, nor have pity. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary." He's talking about people who have been marked, and I think this is not necessarily a physical mark, but a spiritual one. And so you recognize that the marking of someone is not necessarily or inherently wrong. In the Old Testament, the Israelites, both men and women, had earrings. Now, as I said You know, when I grew up in the South, for a man to have an earring was considered to be a sign of being effeminate. But in biblical times, 
You will notice Exodus 32 and verse 2. Aaron said to them, Break off your golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Exodus 35, 22. They came, both men and women, as many as had a willing heart, and brought their earrings and nose rings, rings and necklaces, all jewelry of gold, that is, every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 16, talking about beauty, says, And I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Now, I cannot, being from the South, understand why anybody would want a nose ring. I used to help put rings in the hog's noses to keep them from digging out. And I'm just, that visual image is stuck in my head. But I do recognize biblically that they did do that, both men and women. When I come to the book of Exodus, and he talks about a pierced ear, it's different than the piercing of ears today. In fact, our young people, when they sing one of the songs, Pierce My Ear, O Lord, Today, they have reference to a practice in Exodus 21. He said, and if a servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out for free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall place, pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. The sign of a pierced ear was that of being a slave for life because he wanted to be a slave. So when you come back, you say, well, if I understand you properly, the Bible does not condemn piercing. The Bible does not condemn tattooing. Are there some biblical principles that you have to consider? I think definitely so. So let me mention some of the biblical principles which I think need to be considered. Number one... Anything vulgar or profane has no place on the child of God, whether it's tattooed on you or worn on a T-shirt or any other way. And I will tell you that one of the elders of the church which I grew up, when he was in the Navy as a very young man, had the outline of a naked woman tattooed on the inside of his arm. For the rest of his life, whether it was at work or wherever he went, he always wore long sleeves. He did so and spoke several times in the teenage Bible class that I grew up about how sorry he was for what he had done. He was embarrassed by it, and I suggest that the fact that tattoos are not completely permanent, but they are very close to being permanent, a person ought to think very carefully before they put something on their body that is that kind of permanent. Number two, no one has a right to expose their modesty to others to pierce something or to tattoo something. I will tell you that it's become very fashionable for young ladies and I guess even young men to have piercings and tattoos in their private areas. That's immodesty regardless of where it takes place or whether it's a tattoo artist or something such as that. Leviticus chapter 18 is very explicit about 
nakedness and to whom that nakedness is shown. And when you look at some of them, I'm not going to use all of them, just pull out one verse of many of Leviticus 18. The nakedness of your sister, the nakedness of your father, daughter of your father, the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or elsewhere, their nakedness you shall not uncover. That's only one of many where he says you don't uncover it. Ezekiel 23.18 says, She revealed her harlotry and uncovered her nakedness. Women and men who decide that they want to expose themselves violate God's law in so doing. And then the bottom line principle in all of this, whether it is a piercing, whether it's a tattoo, or any chosen custom or habit needs to always be guided by these verses of Scripture. Romans 14, 13 says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but let us resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. Let's don't do anything that might cause someone else to stumble and fall spiritually. Verse 21, it is good neither to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. And Paul put it, I thought, very well in 1 Corinthians 10, 32. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Jews or Greeks reveals both the worldly people that one would deal with, and then he says, order the church of God. We as Christians ought to be different. We ought to stand out and our lives be a model of what is good and what is right. Question number two. How should one treat a person who has been disciplined? And when you bring up the subject of church discipline, there are some direct passages. Passages that are written for the very purpose of knowing what to do, how to do it, and why to do it. I want to explore two passages with you. One is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. The other is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says, but we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the custom which he received from us. Dropping down to verse 14 and 15. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note or mark that person and do not keep Company with him, that he may be ashamed, yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. I want to make two or three observations as you go through these verses. Number one, these are not suggestions. These are not recommendations. These are biblical scriptural obligations. And the obligation is given in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is, by His authority, that you withdraw from every brother that walks disorderly. I want you to drop down to verse 14 and notice that He says, Do not keep company with Him. The word keep company is a Greek word about this long. 
words. It's actually a combination of three other words. And it means do not mix repeatedly with. In the sense of social or uh, entertainment type situations. For instance, the eating of a meal together and the, the enjoying of fellowship together. So he says, I want you to withdraw to not keep company with those people who, he says, walks disorderly. Then he goes on to explain those people that do not obey the word in this epistle. If people choose to be disobedient to the divine directives, those things that are given by God, then we're not to keep company with them. But then he adds a correction in verse 15, not a correction to change what he just said, but a correction lest you and I misunderstand. And that is, yet count him not as an enemy. Don't look at that person as a person that you are at war with. Yet you admonish him and the word admonishing means to encourage. He said you admonish him as you would a brother because you want him to change. Now, I will make one other observation from the latter part of verse 14. That he may be ashamed. I will tell you, I don't like being shamed. I don't suppose anyone does. And it's become a very common practice when someone shames us that we lash out at those who are shaming us. But in reality here, it's not us shaming them. It's their own behavior that has brought the shame. We're actually just allowing this person to see the error of their ways. And I'm going to bring up the prodigal son here in just a moment. Let me deal with the second passage that directly addresses this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. If you'll remember the context in verse 1 is that one has his father's wife. The context also says, You have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you, but rather you're puffed up. People have become rather proud of this topic. So here's what Paul says. I wrote unto you in my epistle not to keep company with fornicators. You see those words again, not to keep company with? He said, yet I certainly did not mean fornicators of this world or with the covetous, extortioners, idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. Now there's a little bit of an explanation there of what he means. If a person could not have social interaction with anybody who was doing wrong, be very difficult to buy your groceries, be very difficult to buy your gas, be very difficult to, to function in this world. So he says, I'm not describing the, the people of the world. He said, verse 11, but I have written unto you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who's a fornicator, covetous, or idolater, reviler, drunkard, or extortioner. Not even to eat with such a person. The idea here is that you remove the social interaction to allow them to see the error of their ways. 
Now let me try to tie together the ideas that are in these. Love is what motivates discipline. The only reason why you would discipline somebody is because you love them enough to want them to change. Hebrews chapter 12, along with a number of other passages like Revelation chapter 2, the Lord said, as many as I love, I reprove and chasten. The reason why there is discipline is because you actually care about that person. And the person who is disciplined needs to know that they are loved. They need to know that they're not an enemy. They need to know that they're a person who you really desire them to correct the situation in their life. But the Bible also recognizes that it's sometimes difficult on our side. Those of us who love that person, we want to them to repent. It's easy for us to develop the wrong attitude. I want to take you to a couple of passages. The first one is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. The person of 1 Corinthians 5 evidently repented. And Paul talks about them and he says, the punishment that was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. It did what it was supposed to do. So that now on the contrary, you ought to rather forgive him and comfort him lest such... Perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. And he says, I wrote unto you that you, I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. What would the church at Corinth do? Would they continue to look at that person and say, Well, they made a terrible mistake. They sinned and... Now we're going to hold them in suspicion for the rest of their life. Paul says you don't do that. He said what you do, you reaffirm your love to them. You let them know that you are loved. And when I get down to verse 11, he says, we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. And you say, well, surely nobody would ever feel like that. You remember Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son? The prodigal son went into a far country. There he remembered what good he had at his father's house. And he and himself made the determination, I'm going to go back. I'm going to repent. I'm going to confess. When he arrived back, his father greeted him, loved him. But you know what the elder brother did? The elder brother wouldn't have anything to do with him. He harbored resentment toward the person. We've got to be of the mindset that if we can persuade, we can encourage, we can love people enough that maybe they'll want to come back. And when they do, we need to make sure that we love them dearly and let them know that they are forgiven by God. Question number three. I'm going to have to move on. This is the one of the questions that I really wanted to get to. How should I prepare to lead in worship? And I'm going to tell you, this is a very insightful and spiritually minded question. In fact, I just love this question. 
I really wanted this to start with, but I decided I want to end on a high note instead of on a low note. Everyone should be thinking about preparing for worship, not just those who are leading. You look at the preacher, you look at the song leader, you look at the prayer leader, and you, you expect preparation. But what about when I sit in the pew? Should I, in my mind, be preparing for worship? Exodus chapter 19 is a wonderful passage. The children of Israel have passed through the Red Sea. They've made their journey to the foot of Mount Sinai. They're about ready to receive the law. God in the third day is going to descend down upon Mount Sinai with all kinds of signs, if you will. There's going to be darkness, there's going to be lightning, there's going to be thunder, the mountain's going to quake. And God has told the children of Israel, don't you touch that mountain. You come right up to it, but don't you touch it. In Exodus 19, verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. And let them wash their clothes. And let them be ready the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You think with me for just a moment about the significance of that passage. God said, consecrate yourself today. Consecrate yourself tomorrow. And I know there's a lot of debate among people about our dress and worship to God. He said, tell the people to wash their clothes. It's not just so their clothes will smell well. It's to recognize the purity of being in the presence of God. God wanted them to appreciate, we're here to worship. When we come to worship, we need to be prepared for it, consecrated, if you will. Let me take it to a second point. What about those who lead in the worship? They should be the kind of people who glorify God and before the people portray God as holy. Now we often study Leviticus chapter 10, but I want you to listen carefully to what Moses writes. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke to me, saying, Now this is careful. By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Let me illustrate to you. Whenever you and I gather, whether it is here or somewhere else to worship God, God must be glorified. God must be regarded as holy. God will hold me accountable for every word that I say in this pulpit. I have no right to desecrate it by doing something that is inappropriate or that is not respectful for God and His Word. 
Now I want to go back to the question. The question was, what should I do to prepare myself to lead in worship? And I think the operative word is to prepare. Let me make some recommendations, if you will. Song leaders should prepare their songs that teach and that edify and be ready to lead them. I love it when song leaders will come in, or really not come in that morning, but will call me and say, hey, I've looked at your sermon topic and I'm trying to pick out a a song. Would this song go well with it? When it comes to the leading of prayers, if you want the preacher to be prepared to not just get up and speak off the top of his head, if you want the song leader to be prepared and not just get up and speak or lead a song that he just, you know, looked down, oh, yeah, that looks like a good song, I'll lead that one. Prayer leaders should consider what to say and how to say it and avoid vain repetitions. You know, there's so many things that you ought to think about. When we come here together, we're not just entertaining folks. We're not here just to um, fill time. We're here to worship God. The prayers are spoken to God. What are you going to say? How are you going to say it? Are you going to communicate the feelings? The only thing in the Bible that we see about these people praying sometimes is the public prayers. They use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Those presiding at the table should think about the prayers they lead before they do. If you knew that you were going to participate in some activity before the governor, the president, or someone of a prominence, would you not plan what you were going to do and so that you did it right, maybe even practice a time or two? When you lead a prayer before the table, when you serve, if I were going to serve, I'd want to know where I was going to stand. I was going to know if I started at the front or the back. I'd want to make sure the person who was on the other end serving with me was so that we served everyone. And then I'd want to make sure that there was time to be able to partake of the emblems and worship myself. You see, as we prepare our minds to worship, we prepare ourselves. We need to think about leading in worship. God deserves the very best we have to offer. The very best. There are great questions in the Bible like the people asking, what should we do then? Or verse 28 of John chapter 6, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Or Acts 16 verse 30, what must I do to be saved? I hope those are some of the questions that maybe you're answering in your own life. We have here in the audience tonight, I'm sure, those who need to be baptized. And I don't know if it's been on your mind, you've been questioning or not, but I I hope you have. I hope you've been thinking about when do I need to obey the gospel? What do I need to do? If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and you are sorry for the sins that you have committed to the point that you are ready to make a change in your life. 
you're willing to acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God, why not come forward tonight, be baptized? Why not make tonight the night that you answer the Lord's call? And if you're a Christian and you're looking at your life and you're saying, I know I'm not ready to meet God. I'm looking at it and I I know perfectly. Here's a grand opportunity for you to correct things that are wrong in your life. Would you come while together we stand and sing?